Hey everyone, I'm Jen Garrett and welcome to the Move the Ball podcast. On this podcast, we are going to talk about how to succeed in business and in life by putting winning strategies into practice to help you advance faster. So if you're looking to move forward and reach that next level of greatness, then you are in the right place. Now get ready. Let's suit up, show up, and move the ball. Hey, Jen Garrett here. It's so great to be back with you for another episode of Move the Ball. Now, if you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and also leave us a review. So today, inside the huddle with us and ready to help us to move the ball is Mr. Daryl Ingram. Daryl is a former NFL tight end who played college football at the University of California, Berkeley, and he was drafted in the NFL by the Minnesota Vikings as the overall 108th pick of the 1989 draft. Daryl played for the Minnesota Vikings, he played for the Cleveland Browns, and he also played for the Green Bay Packers during his five-year NFL career. Outside of football, Daryl has been involved in many different wonderful projects. He's been a business consultant for the sports industry and other industries, and he's doing so much to make a difference both on and off the field, and we'll get into that in today's show. So without further ado, Daryl, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jen. It's an honor and a privilege. So I, I appreciate you, you know, calling me forward and the opportunity to share just kind of what has made me me, um, whether good, bad, or indifferent. Just I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I'm glad that uh, you're able to join us. I, you and I have known each other for a few years now, and I think so highly of you. I know you've done a lot of great things, both on and off the football field, and I'm really excited for us to talk about some of those things today. So let's start off our conversation. Talk to us about how did you get into football to begin with? Well, football, I mean, I had, I had an older brother who played football when, when I was really little. I just fell in love with the game at the age of probably five or six, and it was something that I always wanted to do. My older brother went on and was, you know, a pretty successful high school football player, six years older than me. So when he was, you know, 17, you know, I was 11, 12 years old and watching him do his thing, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. And what was it about the game that really got you fired up? Well, we're talking early 70s. And so, you know, football back then, you know, schematically not too different than it is now. There's some things that are different. But, you know, it was a game that a lot of people just sort of gathered around. And my family was, was, a, was a group that did that as well. And, you know, I, I had uh, three brothers and a sister. We all were very competitive, very athletic. And our parents sort of raised us to be that way. And part of it is just the, the nature of being athletic and, and, and competitive in sports and also in academics. But part of it, it was being, coming from a black family, being able to compete in, in life and compete in society. You know, our parents, and I'm not alone in this, our parents taught us, you have to be willing to do twice as much to and expect half as much on the, on the other side. So it was a way for me sort of hone my ability to compete. I also played basketball to a great degree as a kid, played baseball. And then as I got in high school, I ran track. So I was always involved in sports. And sports was that way to sort of, you know, separate yourself. I thought about this over the years, the group of guys that I grew up with, and we're still really close in Southern California, I grew up with them in Southern California. Playing professional sports was ascending to the heights of that, that mythical competitive mountain as we saw it as kids. And so I remember making myself a promise when I was eight years old, so a very young young guy, but making myself a promise that I was going to do better 
in sports and do better in athletics than these kids I grew up with, you know. And at the time, we were not the friends that we became. And we're talking 1974. So there were a lot of, you know, racial things going on in society and where I grew up. I, I grew up the first eight years of my life, I was in Northern California. We're talking 66 to 74. And you can imagine the things that were going on in history in that part of the country. You know, I remember Patty Hearst kidnapping and, and all of that going bank robberies and all that stuff going on as a kid. But then in 1974, my family moved to Southern California. We moved away from sort of the racially diverse Bay Area to a very um, white area. And I was one of a couple of black kids that went to my elementary, my brother being another one. And so there were some lessons learned and some things I had to acclimate myself to based on race and wanting to achieve and wanting to, you know, show that I was just as good, if not better than the kids that I was in school with at the time. A lot of them went on to be my very best friends and some of them not so much, but it was a way for me to show my deservedness, if you will, uh, my, my sense of belonging and showing them that I could even do better. So that, that really drove me as a young child all the way into being a teenager. And I like that you talk about that striving for improvement because continual improvement is something that I write about in my Move the Ball book. It's something that a lot of uh, former guests who have been uh, pro athletes talk about is always looking at how you can get better. And so uh, obviously you were focused on that and you continued uh, in your college career, you played football at the University of Berkeley, Cal Berkeley. And so talk to us about what was it like playing collegiate football? I mean, I don't remember what all the stats are, but there's a lot of kids that play, you know, football in high school, right? Smaller percentage get to college and a very small percentage get to the NFL level. So what was it like to play college football for you? Talk to us about that experience. So the statistics you're talking about, out of the high school seniors that play one, less than 1% play Division One football, and then even a, a smaller degree, 0.03% play NFL. So the fact, the, the notion that you're going to play in the NFL is far-fetched and really unbelievable. For me, and I remember in high school, and I recently told my 13-year-old my son the same thing, is my goal was always to be the best I could be at whatever level I was at. So if that meant being a great high school player and getting an opportunity to play in college anywhere, then that's what it meant. If I did not have the ability to play Division One football, then I would have played Division Two football. I, it just I felt that I was a good enough football player that my parents should not have to pay for my college career, that I should be able to earn that playing football. And I was right. I, I mentioned earlier that the first eight years of my life were spent in the Bay Area. Well, I saw Berkeley in 1970. We're talking two years after the summer of love. We're talking hate Ashbury. We're talking hippies. We're talking LSD. I was a young, young kid, but I saw all that stuff and understood it. And I knew that I wanted to go to school at Berkeley. So I knew from a very young age, that's where I wanted to go to school. After I had had my successful high school career, I was recruited by schools all over the country. The only recruiting trip I took was to Berkeley, and I wanted to go to school there. When I went there, after my visit, had a great time in the Bay Area. I got to see some family when I was there, but came home, and the coaches called and said, well, we, we don't have a scholarship for you right now. And I was like, what? Like, I couldn't believe it. And I, I, I remember thinking, to, and I told my coach, like, my high school coach, coach, you got to find me another spot because I'm not – they wanted me to walk on. And they want everybody to walk on because it saves them scholarships, but I was determined not to walk on. 
signing day was just the next Wednesday. And so three days go by after my recruiting trip. And now all of a sudden they want to give me a scholarship. And it was a, it was my dad's negotiating skill or basically being stubborn and saying, Hey, he's not going to school there unless you guys give him a scholarship. So he was playing their bluff and he was right. And I, I, I stuck with him because I, that's where I wanted to go to school, but I was not going to go and walk on where I knew that my skill was deserving of a scholarship. So went to Cal. I think there were 13, 14 or 15 kids in my freshman class. If someone had lined us all up that first day and said, okay, which one of these kids is going to be the kid that goes to the NFL? I doubt I would have been on that list. I was a good high school player. I was, I, you know, decent as a, as a freshman, but I don't think I would have been on that list. There are other people who might say it differently because when it came down to making the travel team, you know, I was one of three that made it as a freshman. All of us did redshirt. So then the next year, I was a part-time starter. And then the, my redshirt sophomore year, I was a full-time starter all the way through when I uh, finished uh, playing. It was surreal. Again, I was trying to be the best player I could be at the level. And if it, meant it felt great, and if it didn't, that's fine too. But it was, it was a surreal experience my senior year when I had all these accolades being pulled aside by the media and being asked for, you know, I signed my first autograph in, after a high school game, which was unbelievable to me at the time. But, but, but in college, you know, people were asking me for my autograph and you're going to be in the NFL. And so that was surreal. I was almost outside of my body looking at myself uh, with disbelief that I had been able to achieve what I had achieved. And so it was great. And, you know, the, the advantage that I had playing for Berkeley in the Pac-10 at the time, Pac-12 now, and then playing for a coach named Bruce Snyder. And Coach Terry Shea was our offensive coordinator. Bill Averoni was my offensive line coach. And they really prepared not only me, but all of us to play at a next level of football. Regardless of our particular skill, the schemes and how we were taught – prepared me to play in the NFL for sure. And so when I went to the NFL, it was drafted fourth round and let's see, 108th pick, I think, fifth tight end chosen. When I went there, I was the only rookie that made the team. We And back then there were 12 rounds. So they put the – they didn't take a first rounder because back in the day the Vikings always traded their first round pick. They put the second round guy on IR. He got hurt. Third round guy got cut. I was fourth round. I made the team. And then five through 12 all got cut. So I was the only rookie on the 1989 team, the Minnesota Vikings. And it was a good team. That was the year that the Vikings made that trade to, to acquire Herschel Walker. Some people say that they sold out their future. But everybody on that team, every position on that team had recently been to the Pro Bowl. And so I was proud to have made that team. And it was a really good team. We ended up losing in the playoffs to the eventual Super Bowl champions, the 49ers, and they were just a phenomenal team, that 89 team. That was the famous Super Bowl where Joe Montana said to his uh, offensive unit that, that he is, hey, isn't that John Candy right there on, on their winning drive? He spotted John Candy in the crowd. So that, that was a very good 49er team, and we were a good team too, but just not as good as them. So, again, you know, what I was taught in college, also what I was taught in high school, just prepared me to play at the next level. The adjustment of the game really is about speed, so you have to adjust to the speed of the game. But if you were taught some of the fundamentals of playing a pro-style game, then it's going to translate. So I was able to go into camp and pick up everything fairly quickly and be able to perform and play.
That's a great story. And I really like how you shared to no matter what level you're at, always play at your best or be at your best, regardless of the level. And I think that's important no matter what sport you're playing, no matter what job you have, you have to focus on being your best and performing at your highest capability in the role that you have. And when you do that, you're positioning yourself for that next level of success. Yeah, I think that's germane to that, Jen, is there are times when we all are not necessarily at our best and we learn from those missed opportunities. And so we go back at it the next time with even more fervor trying to ascend and, and be our best. And it's, it's something that we should aspire to do our entire lives. Like you said, regardless of a sports or career or education, whatever it is. And so we, we should aspire to always try to do better. And then, you know, things take on new meaning as we get older if you would have asked me what success meant at 23, I would have said it meant a bunch of money and, and football success. If you would ask me what it meant at 30, I would have had a much definition. And then my son was born. I was a late father. My son was born when I was 41. My definition of success then was just to see this baby through, just to, to raise this boy to be able to be a productive member of society, give him all the love, foundation, for success that you can. And it was a debt that I owed to my parents because I, I, I know, you know, it was never verbally communicated, but I know that was their goal for me and my siblings to provide us with that foundation. And they did. And so I, I felt I owed that debt. Plus it's just what I think is the right thing to do as a parent. You know, we love, love, love our kids. We're crazy about our kids. And, and we can't imagine once they're born, we can't imagine life without them. And so, you know, I, I think we all have that innate natural ability to do that. Now, we all know that there are some parents who fall short for whatever reason. But I do think internally we all have that capability uh, to be able to be that parent and that, that advocate, that leader. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm big into leadership and it's something that I've tried to teach my son. And he's picked up on it pretty well. But, you know, my, the first rule of leadership for me is to lead by example. Well, actually, that's uh, on my official list. That's the second rule. My, my first rule is to be able to lead yourself. Like if you can't lead yourself, then you can't be a leader of anybody else. And then the second, the second law, if you will, I think I have seven of them that I've written down and captured. The, se the second one was to lead by example. And so when you become a parent, that's the most difficult and most important leadership role that you will ever have. Sure. So let's talk about leadership traits, characteristics a little bit more. So when you look at the people that you either played with or coaches that you interacted with throughout your career, high school, college, NFL, talk to us about what were some of the leadership qualities of the people that you really admire that you think are important for those listening who are off the field, you know, looking to reach that next level of success in their lives? Well, I mean, the natural inclination when someone asks you that question, not just for me, but I would think for other people, is that, you know, there's going to be this golden nugget that somebody shared with you, some advice that was just wonderful and really got you over. And that's probably true for a lot of people. But for me, the number one thing that exhibited leadership, and I saw it in my parents, I saw it in the coaches that I respected and still do and care for. And I see it, uh, you know, in, in professors that I've had and, and teachers and, and coworkers. The number one thing, and I try to exhibit this too, is 
you got to show that you care. You got to, and, and you can call it love. I mean, I, I, you know, in business, I will tell my customers, make sure you guys understand that we love you. You are our customers and we love you. And so, I, you know, it's not a word that I think is out of place, but there's a saying that goes, people do not care what you know until they know that you care, right? And so that's the number one thing. And so when I was in high school, my head coach, his name is Carl Sweet, I knew that he loved us, that he was crazy about us, and that he talked about how talented we were. And, you know, we, we were a very talented team. We were able to win our championship at the time. And so then when I got to college, the, the coach that recruited me was a great recruiter, but I don't think he took the time to care for us way that my eventual college coach, Bruce Snyder, and again, I said Terry Shea and Bill Laveroni, my position coaches, they showed that they cared about us. I was also lucky enough to play under Steve Mariucci in college, and he fit that same mold. You could tell that those coaches loved us, and they were going to love up on us by teaching us the proper way to play. And so that's something that I've taken, and I try to apply it in my life, and it's just care. You care about that individual's development. You care about that individual's outcome. You care about the things that they're doing. You care about the things that they're struggling with. You care about being able to help them overcome those things. And if you can lend some advice based on your own life, you know, hopefully we all as individuals have paid attention to those markers, those road markers in our lives where things may have been difficult. We were able to overcome them and being able to share that information to make somebody else's path a little easier is it typically it comes from a genuine, sincere, deep place of care, love, and affection. And I think that's how we should be um, to everybody. Um, and that's how all of our leaders should be. And we, I can point to great examples in history. Everybody can. But I think it goes back to somebody's, somebody's a caretaker. They really care about what's going on with this group of men or that group of women or the individuals or whatever it would be. It, it just comes down to care. I'm glad that you mentioned caring is that I feel like as human beings, we all have emotions and we all want to connect with other people. And it's so critical to have a component with the people that if they're customers, if they're teammates, if they're friends, family, like you have to show people that you care. And so I'm so glad that you brought that part out, especially in today's day. There's a lot going on in this world. There's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of uncertainty. And people want to know that you're there for them and that you care, right? And so the great leaders make sure that they extend that and that they focus on those parts of, of the human connection versus just business results, you know, trying to get to specific goals, metrics, yada, yada. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's tantamount to success, in my, in my opinion. It's a destination we never reach. We are always on a journey to get there and improving, hopefully, day by day, year by year. And there'll be some times when we may get sidetracked. We got to get back on that. I was uh, fortunate enough to, to graduate with my second master's degree from Northwestern in 2019. It was cool because I was 25 years older than all the kids that were in class with me. So that was really cool. And I did very well. I did very well. So because I played in the NFL, uh, when I graduated, the folks at Northwestern wanted to document it for incoming people. And so I was selected to be interviewed. And th they asked me, you know, for what, what piece of advice would you give? And I just, something that I say to my son, 
And I looked in the camera pretty sternly and said, always remember that when you get knocked off track, you got to hustle to get back on track and you got to do it with intention. And that intention is going to take you the place you want to go. You can't just kind of get back on track and kind of ease your way into it. You got to get back on track and you got to do it with the purpose of whatever the original goal was. That's got to be front and foremost in your mind is achieving whatever the goal was. Now, I, I was able to get an MBA back in 2002. I graduated. The path of my education, so I'm, I'm an educated person, not as educated as some people <laughs> in this conversation, but educated, right? And so when I was young, I remember being six or seven and my mom was getting her associate's degree and she took me to class to be her CPR dummy. So she performed CPR on me in front of a class when I was about six. And I also saw her graduate with her bachelor's degree a couple of years later. And then when I graduated college, she, she's like, Let's, I'm going to race you. Let's see who we can get a master's first, right? And I was playing football but she went and got her master's. So I saw my mom graduate, you know, associates, bachelor's and master's during my lifetime and my young lifetime. And so I knew from an early age that if I ever have a kid, I'm going to have to go to school when that kid can see me and understand that I'm going to school because I want to provide that inspiration for lifelong learning like my mother provided me. I was fortunate enough to enroll and get into Northwestern for a master's of sports administration degree. And I finished in 2019 and my son was there. And I told him the reason I was going back to school, I'm going back, son, so you can see me do it. I want you to see your 50-year-old dad getting a graduate degree. And so I went back to school. My son, when I started, he was nine. And he said to me, dad, great. But when you graduate, can I have a new suit? <laughs> absolutely buddy so there's a picture of us he's wearing his suit with his purple tie i'm wearing my gray suit with my purple tie and in my gown and it is an amazing thing to be a father sure absolutely and there are some folks that are listening that are parents there are some that are not parents and what i like to think about is even if you don't have kids you should still strive to empower and inspire people around you to be better too, right? So of course we want that our children, we want our children to be better than us. But if you don't have children, still, you know, take what Daryl's sharing. You can use these things to make an impact, make a difference on the people around you and help them to be better people as well. Well, I think we need to get to the point in this planet where all children are our children, right? So you don't have to be a biological father. If you have grown and have some knowledge, you can share that with younger folks. And, you know, maybe it's a niece or a nephew, or maybe it's a friend's kid, whatever. They are sponges and they are looking for leadership. They're looking for guidance. And if you can show them that you care, share with them how you've overcome things, and also share with them how you've dealt with success. Um, that's important because a lot of people don't necessarily deal with success well. So, how are you able to stay grounded and stay focused? And quite frankly, a lot of us kind of, you know, aren't able to do that as succinctly as we would like, but we learn how to, to get better at it. And again, it's a constant journey as well. We're always trying to learn how we can deal with life circumstances, you know, whether we perceive them as negative or positive as best as we can. And if somebody can get a lesson out of it, it's a great thing. I recently was able to talk to remaining patriarch of my dad's family. It is my dad's great uncle. 
he is 87 years old. So it's my grandfather's brother. And he is 87 years old. There were, I believe, seven or eight of them. He's the last living. And I talked to him. Last week was his birthday. I was able to talk to him. And he is as sharp as he was the last time I saw him. I mean, he's a sharp guy. Of course, he's 87. He's gotten older. But his mind is intact and still there. I was able to share with him, you know, my life a little bit, my son's life, and how much, you know, we care about our family. And it was, it, I was very honored to speak with him because, you know, he obviously has been a member of our family for a long time. He has seen a lot of people come and a lot of people go in, in one way or, the, or another. There's just this embedded knowledge that he has, and there's this embedded a love that he has for everybody that's in his family. To me, at the time, he was sharing that with me, and I, I felt great after talking to him. And I hadn't talked to him in a very long time, but I felt great to be able to, to share that time with him. I was honored that uh, he cared so much about what I was up to and what I was doing. To those listening, if you could tell from our conversation, Gerald's very much a person that looks to make a positive impact, makes a difference. He, he did on the field when he was playing football. He's doing so many great things to make a positive influence on the people around him in his son's life. I know something else you're doing to make a difference is you're involved with an organization called Cryosymmetry, a company. Talk to us about what that company is and the things that you're looking to do by being a part of it. The vice is called Persoma. And it means of the body. And I was actually able to name it. I named the company as well. Um, I'm a founder of the company. We have a therapeutic appliance, a little bit bigger than a shoebox. It has um, the capabilities of getting hotter than anything else and colder as well. So it serves, you know, acute and chronic injuries, joints, soft tissue, and muscle. And it does that by... There's an umbilical cord that comes off of the machine. It attaches to a body-specific, body part-specific garment, whether it be a glove or uh, a knee wrap or a lower back wrap or a, a skull cap. And we're able to use the technology that's in the, in the, in the device to be able to treat, uh, again, acute injury or chronic injury. Let's just say that people have known when you injure something, you should put ice on it and cool it to get the swelling and sort of stop the blood from flowing there that will create swelling. And then also when you're healing is to put heat on it so you can bring fresh blood there so it can heal faster. People have known about that since, you know, ancient Rome. I mean, that goes back a long time. The technology and the specific appliance that we have, there are competitors in the industry. They have devices that are, are as big as love seats. They're, they're huge. And they are in, stuck in orthopedic offices. We have a device that if, I, if it existed when I was playing, I would have bought one or two for myself. Um, I would have taken it on the plane. I would have taken it to my hotel room. I would have taken it on a bus. I would have taken it in my car. And it's something that we believe should be on every football sideline, on a basketball court, in a hockey rink, any place where people are playing sports and can, can get injured, this device should be. It also is a therapeutic device, so it should be in orthopedic centers and hospitals and rehabilitation centers. And so it's something that we have been working on uh, to put together. It has some unique properties in the fact that it's a connected device. And those who know anything about connectivity 
um, you know, the, the typical term is smart. It's a smart device. You can imagine the business cases that spring up around something that is connected and can keep track of data and the data sets that can be created by that and how different people in different industries can use that data for better treatment, but also to understand the person's usage and usage patterns and all the data sets that you can imagine can be derived from this uh, device. So we're very excited about that. We've been working on it for a couple of years. We still have some work to do, but uh, hopefully we can um, put it together to the point where we can go um, and commercialize it. That's awesome. And do you have a website where people can just read up and stay apprised of what you guys are doing? We do not have a website for it. It's a little bit too early. We're still working on it. So the website does not exist yet. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing more updates and uh, we'll certainly let everyone know once uh, the website is up, then we can put that back in the show notes too. So people can uh, keep up with all the great things you're doing. Sounds like you're definitely putting together some great stuff there. So what I want to do now is I want to transition to my two minute drill. I'm going to ask you seven quick, fun questions. Are you ready? I will do my best. (laughs) All right. The first question is what's your favorite food? I really don't have a favorite food to tell you the truth. Okay. What is your favorite movie? It's a tie. I would say Godfather 1, Godfather 2, and and Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Those are fabulous films all in their own right. Gotcha. I've never watched the Godfather movies, I'll have to admit. So oh, I, my need to... <laughs> I need how to I need to watch you, How did you get through life? How did you get through life without watching Godfather? I mean, they're amazing. And they're always on TV too, so Check them out. Yes. Next time I see them on, I will have to watch them. All right. Next question is, what is your favorite professional sports team? I don't have one. And and the reason I don't have one is because when you become a professional player, you have to put all that fandom aside. Now, I know there are guys that regain that after they play. I just never did. And so I don't root for a team. I may root against the team based on my experience of the coach of that team, (laughs) but I don't have a, I don't have a, and I like to see the coaches I like do well, whatever their team is. So I don't really have a favorite team since my son, who is also football crazy, you know, at the, from the age of four, you know, the very first voicemail I got from my son, he called me from his mom's cell phone and said, dad, can, can we go, you know, it's our local little watering hole, sports bar he's four years old and he wanted to he, he planned out two weeks ahead so that we can go watch the Packers play against somebody and that was his voicemail to me and so I was like oh my goodness this boy is so crazy about football he's calling his dad and leaving a message at four years of age to go to a future game and so because of his affection for teams sometimes I have to take the opposing team just so we can have a little competitive thing going on and we may bet, you know, some cheese curds or something like that that, he, that he'll win or whatever. And if I had to say what my favorite team is, it's my college team, of course, a place where sure. I spent four and a half seasons and blood, sweat, and tears and everything. But, yeah, go Bears. There you go. There you go. And the reason why I got excited is because I'm a Chicago Bears fan. So different Bears, but different you root, Bears. For, Chicago. <laughs> but you root yeah. for Chicago two, two, two games a season, I think. So, well. Uh, no, not, <laughs> no. I don't think so. Not really. Oh, darn. And I just want to say the University of California has been around since 1868, 
we were the Bears before the dang Chicago, before okay. the before the Decatur Staley's became the Chicago Bears. We were the Very Bears. Very true. <laughs> we're the original Bears. Gotcha. All right. We'll give you that. So how about next question is, what is the best piece of advice that you've gotten from a coach or a mentor? I'm going to keep it simple. I've gotten a lot of really cool things from coaches and mentors, but I'm going to keep it simple. I was practicing at, at Berkeley, and there's a pass thrown to me. And I lost it in the sun. Coach Mariucci said, you know, what happened? I can even catch the ball. And I said, well, I lost it in the sun, Coach. He's like, well, the next time that happens, just catch the sun. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Why didn't I think of that? Like, oh, my goodness. Because what he was saying to me was, well, you know where the ball is. Your brain already has predicted where the ball is. It doesn't matter if you can't see it. it whatever you can see the sun in the, this regard, just catch that because the, your brain is going to time out when the ball should be there based on when it was released. It's just the natural ability of being a receiver. And so I was like, man, that is, that is a very simple, plain, but a great piece of advice. So I've told, you know, the kids that I've coached, the young kids I've coached, when they say the, the ball's in the sun, I can't say, I'm like, well, just catch the sun, catch the sun. And I'm able to explain it to them and they get it. So that, that was a great piece of advice. Gotcha. Okay. Now I'm going to flip it and ask, what's the best piece of advice that you would give somebody? What I said after I graduated from my last program is if you get off track, get back on it, but do it with intention. You know, it's easy for us to just kind of go through life. Oh, I know I need to get this done. And you get bogged down with all of the stuff you have to do. But if there's something that you really want to accomplish, you know, when you get up in, out of bed in the morning, think about that goal and go after it with intention. Absolutely. I think so too. All right. My next question is what is something that most people don't know about you? I actually was asked recently to put together my poetry in book form. So I would say most people don't know that I am a poet, truly. I have been so my entire life. I can remember writing things when I was a very small kid. And so I have a collection of poetry. And poetry, it's in the eye of the beholder, right? There's some things that we all can recognize. Um, and there's some things that only uh, an individual understand. And mm -hmm. I probably have a mix of both, right? I have some things that people would go, oh, my God, this is incredible. Oh, or some things that only Daryl will understand. So I, I would say that. That is something I did not know about you. When I was in uh, undergrad, I actually had a poetry class that I had as one of my English uh, gen ed credits. It was enjoyable learning how to write different styles of poetry and stuff. All right, my next question, last question is, if you could be any superhero, who would you be and why? The superhero that I would be isn't a real superhero, but I would be obviously be super dad i mean you know like being able to take care of my kid and other kids as best as i can you know from a philosophical standpoint now if you're going to talk about the traditional superheroes i will pick spider-man because spider-man's always been my favorite and one of the things my son his favorite superhero was batman my son asked me one time at three or four years of age he said to me dad you are the real spider-man right and I said, absolutely, Aww. I am, son. Absolutely. Of course I am. And so he was able to understand that his dad wasn't, uh, you know, a year or two later. But at the time, to him, I was the real Spider-Man. He's like, Dad, you are the real Spider-Man, right? Of course I am, son. <laughs> Without question. So, oh, that's a great story. Yeah. 
he knew the other Spider-Mans were fake and that his dad was the real Spider-Man. So, yeah, I would say Spider-Man. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Daryl. As we close the show, are there any last thoughts that you have for our listeners? I would just say to anybody at any time, as I said earlier about my son's dreams being precious to me, my dreams are also precious to me. And so make sure that your dreams are precious to you and you do everything you can to achieve them. Right. And you know, things are going to change over time. And like I said, you're going to define success differently at 40 than you do at 20. And that's okay. That's just developmental. I mean, that's just fine. But as long as uh, through the course of your life, you can look at yourself and saying, I'm on the track of being successful. And success means obviously a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But whatever it means to you, if you feel that you are living up to that, then you're doing the right thing. And if you don't feel you're living up to it, then get yourself back on track with intention to live up to it. And that, that's what I would say to anybody. Great. I love that. Thanks for, for sharing those final thoughts. Again, Daryl, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, ma'am. Appreciate it. And thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, we will catch you on the next episode. Until then, make sure that you suit up, you show up, and you move the ball. Thank you for listening to Move the Ball. To see more about what I'm up to and how I can help you to move the ball, check out my website at www.jenniferagarrett.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And also join the Move the Ball Facebook group for even more content and to be a part of the Move the Ball movement.